1: You're listening to The podcast, the nature and countryside podcast from BBC Countryfile magazine. I'm Fergus Collins and I'm your host. In this, our last episode before Christmas, we are appropriately talking about partridges, one of the famous birds of the festive season, or so the song goes. In Britain, our native grey partridge is not doing so well. So I met up with writer, nature lover and editor of the Shooting Times, Patrick Galbraith, to search for them in the Sussex countryside talk about what can be done to turn the tide. Don't forget to leave likes and positive feedback on whichever podcast provider you use, and you can email me, editor at countryfile.com. Patrick, hello. Hi How there. Are doing? Very well, thank you. You've, t- you've enticed me all the way from Wales down to this glorious, very quaint village to, uh, to talk about, well, to talk about wildlife partridges in particular, but also your book.
2: Yeah, it's interesting to be back here because I was here twice when I was writing the book. The first time with an ornithologist, I was with him nearby, and uh, we were actually at the pub and he said to me, we must go and look at this window, and I didn't know about the window at that point. But um, there's an amazing stained glass window just in this church we're looking at here, which is the Gilbert White uh, Memorial Window. And Gilbert White, he's really sort of known as as Britain's first naturalist. Um, And he wrote about grey partridges here in this parish. Uh, at the time that he was preaching, they were plentiful, and now there are none.
1: Gilbert White was writing in the 18th century, is that right? Yeah, that's yeah, right, that's so right. You know, that's a time when most people were sort of probably head down in the soil sort of thing, and he had time to look at wildlife, study it. He did, and also I think what's so amazing, and I, I write this in, in
2: the start of the chapter actually, the, the chapter starts inside the church, but when he was writing, the the sort of, space between magic and, and science there sort of wasn't a space between magic and science so they used to speculate that um, you know that, that swallows used to go down into muddy pond bottoms and would reemerge again in spring or they'd fly up very high so there was this really sort of everything was quite speculative um, which I think is, is really interesting but also he was sort of coming to conclusions which you know, were well ahead of his time as well
1: uh, so to just the, the book is um, in search of one last song Yes, it's
2: it's called In Search of One Last Song: Britain's Disappearing Birds and the People Trying to Save Them. What I wanted to do initially with the book was to try and understand the way that birds are really deeply embedded in British culture. So when we lose our birds, um, you know, it's not just losing sort of you know, feather and, and song; it's losing a lot more than that. And and the grey partridge, you know, was just everywhere. Really, it was it was symbolic of. The countryside, but the countryside as it was, um, and as farming has become more intensive, and as we've sought to eke out ever higher margins, the, the grey partridge has done pretty badly.
1: Yeah, I, I had the Observer's Book of Birds when I was eight, first book, bird book I ever received, and it describes the grey partridge as extremely common. Mm. And this is, this is the 1970s, so it's been a relatively recent decline of the partridges. I mean, I'm talking not since the 70s, probably since the Second World War. Yeah, it but really but has been. More about this. I
2: mean. <laughs> The Swiss ornithologist who works for the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust, who lives quite near here, he said to me, you have no idea how many millions of grey partridges there were in Britain. He said it was the most common farmland bird. Um, But interestingly, they would have, at one point, he was saying, been on the periphery. And then, you know, as we sort of deforested, they moved inland and they did very well when you had sprawling hedges and you had winter stubble there was plenty of places for them to shelter and there were plenty of places um for them to find food and and now with with bigger fields um and with getting rid of hedges which is all relatively new it's a sort of post-war thing um, that's that's you know the point at which they started to go and then of course the ubiquitous red leg partridge um and you know we see those all over the place your listeners will see those all over the place also has a part to play more recently in that we're gonna come and, go we'll and come look, on to go, that go, later. Go we might even someplace.
1: see hopefully we'll see some greys, but fantastic. It's been a long time since I've seen a grey partridge. Um, so we're at this church. Uh, this is is Gilbert White buried here? I mean Gilbert White know. is
2: buried here. He's buried actually, I think, just around the corner. Um, hmm. it's quite an amazing we can only see the, the back of it, uh, the window from here, but you can actually make out can you make out the grey partridge there?
1: I can, yes. Yeah. A very, very typical sort of slightly dumpy, dumpy little bird. And it's at yes, the, it's right in the, middle, the feet
2: of um, St. Francis of Assisi. You'd be doing well Actually. if you could identify St. Francis on this side <laughs> of the window. But he's very, um, I write about it in the start of the chapter, he's very kind of pretty and boyish in this image. And I think it was almost exactly 100 years ago that this window was put in here. And it's St. Francis preaching to all of the birds and animals that feature in Gilbert White's writing. So it's
1: really quite eclectic. There's all kinds of, all kinds of things in there. Magnificent, magnificent, well, This is wonderful very peaceful corner of the countryside to 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 find Gilbert White. Well, obviously, he's resting place. Should we have a quick look first? Let's have a look, yeah. It feels like know, a sort no, of no, pilgrimage no. that... <laughs> <laughs> I've never been to Selborne, so it's... Yeah, I've read... It's a
2: sort of pilgrimage for people who are interested in nature, certainly. I yes. think... I think it's
1: one of these okay, here. OK, yeah, this incredibly lichen-covered. Theme. I
2: think it's that one, actually. Oh, yeah, the okay. lady... I saw the um, the vicar here when I was here before... Um, and she was telling me that's where it was. Quite plain gravestone, plain. really. Yeah, it's got yeah. this
1: sort of arch. But, but I think open.
2: that's almost maybe. I mean, he really did die quite a long time ago. So I think the sort of the notion of those very Victorian um, and ornate gravestones was maybe a slightly later thing.
1: Well, thank you, Gilbert, for all your writing. Where would we be? There probably wouldn't be shooting Times and Country... Well, there probably I don't know. Well, he does write about shooting. So he writes that, um, he writes that in, in some years,
2: grey partridges breed so successfully, he says that some unreasonable parties of sportsmen shoot as many as 30 in a day. You know, and you now have people... Yeah, unreasonable sportsmen, some might say shooting as many as 30 red leg partridges in one drive so yeah. that's a really interesting um, interesting change and certainly 30 grey partridges would keep you uh, eating for quite a long
1: time. So I should say to everyone at home, um, Patrick is editor of Shooting Times uh, which is 104- Shooting Times and Country magazine shooting Times and,
2: Country. and all kinds of other titles over yeah. the years we've absorbed all sorts of the, uh, oh, the Sea Angler's Times I see, so <laughs> Shooting at Sea? <laughs> yeah exactly, Yeah.
1: well they did I think once <laughs> Um, so you've got a, 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 a you know, genuine deep take on, on shooting, conservation and some of these big issues that we've, we've talked about a lot in the podcast over the last three years. But Yeah, I think um, so. I mean,
2: I, I really got a sense. From it. I've been editing the magazine now for um, just over five years and I was 23 when I started editing it. So I was the, the youngest editor in the 140 year Span that the magazine's been uh, published for, and there were all sorts of people I came across who felt that the things that they feel deeply weren't really being understood, and that goes right across. So, some of these guys were old gamekeepers who felt that shooting had become far too intensive, and that you know, younger keepers didn't really understand that, and younger keepers weren't really naturalists in the way that they saw themselves um as being which sounds a little bit like you know a kind of fuddy-duddy thing and, and some of them are aware of that but that really He's interested me. Today, well, exactly, yeah. Do that, yeah yeah but that really interested me and um and and then just farmers as well i mean i was down uh, not far from where you live in in west wales with a, with a guy who's devoted sort of really his whole life to trying to save the lapwing down mm. there you know and the disconnect that he feels with policymakers is just tremendous um So that was where the book sort of started from, but it it talks to all sorts of people, so animal rights activists and anti-shooting activists and keepers uh, and poets and musicians and writers as well, because, as I say, you know, I wanted to know about the various ways that birds and and birdsong
1: inspires them and their work. So I've read the book, in fact, most of the book, and um, it is actually, when I was reading it, these are all a series of quests, a bit like some of our podcasts, where we go off to find something and talk about the stories along the way I found quite a lot of it was nice to be walking with you and meeting these characters that's one of the strengths of the book I think yeah um, how did you know all these people beforehand? no did you, did I didn't dig them so it was a really
2: the really sort of um, quite laborious, but also enjoyable process of, you know, so I went to see, for example, a Thatcher in East Anglia and he said to me that for four generations my family have got reed from four generations of the Randall family. So he said four generations of Dodson have got their reed from four generations of Randall. He said you must go and try and see the Randalls. So at that point I went off to Norfolk and spent two weeks, um, in this cottage there trying to track down Henry Randall who's the reed cutter and I was looking all around the coast for this guy and eventually I found him and he lives so far inland that you can't even see the coast, you can't see where he cuts the reed because he's just been priced out of this incredibly expensive part of the country so that was kind of how those journeys worked and unfolded that one thing led to another thing and led to another thing And you know when I finished it I thought I would never really finish this book in in a sense because you know one person always leads to another and one sort of thought
1: leads to another place It's a very melancholic title and, yeah. and a lot of the stories are i mean they 're painful yeah anyway, anyone who's <laughs> been around you know I, I'm i 'm almost twice your age, but I have seen declines throughout my life and some and some great successes yeah definitely. yeah there I mean, are winners and losers but a certainly. lot of these birds are you said it earlier' they 're kind of key characters they 're sort of deep in our folklore these mm. are the birds that live alongside us yeah um, yeah that have in, you know, they're in poetry they're in Church windows—they're in. They're sort of writing. cornerstones of British mm.
2: culture, which is. But people have—I mean, turtle you know, doves, yeah, like, yeah,
1: wings, and, you know.
2: I found—I mean, I found it quite moving writing the book, but I people sometimes contact me on social media and say, you know, just reading your book, I'm in tears. And I think, is that a good thing? Or is it, it, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and actually,
1: That's um, yeah, no, a hard one to answer. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I was reading at the the Wigton Book Festival, a very good book festival on Monday, and the lady comparing the event, reading, I was reading for the turtle doves chapter, and she was in tears. So it's, it's amazing, I think, the emotional connections that people have with these birds, particularly if they've spent their whole life uh,
1: with them. It's a loss of life. It's a loss of movement. It's a loss of song. It's, I mean, Partridges, lapwings. Lappling. Lapwings have a good
2: song. Lapwings do have a good song. I mean, partridges, they have a, a scratchy alarm call, which well, feels yeah. very kind of agricultural yeah. and sort of. So it, it's not. It's not beautiful. I think the ornithologist in the chapter says it's. It's not lovely song. He says it's just a sort of ugly, scratchy, whatever. Yeah. Um, Search so one last scratch. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but it is. It, 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 it does it's evocative. And that's what I think a lot of these a lot of these 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 sounds do. I mean soundscapes are an extraordinary thing, the way that they're there and we don't often realise it. But I think the way that soundscapes
1: inspire art is very interesting. Shall we go and see if we can get some sounds?
2: One of the things that, that some people uh, remarked on with my book is that I'm always lost in the book, which is yeah. very much, it's not for effect, I sort of, my sense of direction is very bad. So I'm retracing a, a journey, I yeah. suppose, that I was on. I shouldn't um, say
1: that we've already gone out of the wrong end of the village. Come yes, again the that is true. Side, so I was yeah.
2: saying we had a one in two chance of getting it right, we got it wrong. Um, so we came back through the village, But but this was, the, the the estate where I was looking at grey partridges with this ornithologist. And I think you were saying it's a very agricultural landscape, but actually, you know, as you remarked yourself, it's quite interesting because you look at it and it does look quite different to, you know, somewhere like lincolnshire or parts of lincolnshire or those you know it's it's farmed in a much less intensive way so you've got this strip running right at the middle here it's a with massive the, strip it's not it's a, a tiny huge strip, strip yeah and if you think of the cover that you've got in
1: there and you've got some flowers in there yeah. um and teasels, and um and can we get a bit closer Should yeah we I think to we, yeah country? um yeah it's a massive it must be 30 yards wide and it runs for the length of this field mm-hmm. right, it, it must field, be yeah. half
2: a mile long so, the gray partridge is seen as like a barometer species, so when the gray partridge does well, you essentially know that everything else is probably doing well. and the gray partridge chicks particularly when they're born um, they're reliant on insects and, and as we all know, you know we have far fewer insects now in the countryside than we once did. but they really I think for the first few weeks of their life the the number of insects they're eating a day is just extraordinary, and you get uh, a lot of insects where you get these flowers and you get all kinds of things like um. Like ladybird larvae as well, which is which is really really rich, um, and keeps them going, and and that's what you get here. But also the cover is really important. I mean, where so we've seen a lot of buzzards and a few kites around here. Exactly, so that, yeah. So but I mean, if you're a buzzard, you couldn't possibly no. hunt in there because they can just get right down in there. That's so the proper it's, thicket. It really so is. it's amazing, yeah. And that's and that's just what what birds like the grey partridge have lost, yeah. um, because you know if you're not farming this, uh, you, you'll get you'll get some, some grants
1: for not doing so, but, but you know... Is that, the, is that the main reason, or is there a specific partridge recovery strategy on this land
2: on this land there's a specific um strategy so what they've what they've done here is they've said essentially that they're not going to shoot until they uh, get the partridges back to a sufficient number to shoot a few gray partridges and that's a really interesting thing i think because people would say well why would you possibly shoot something that's endangered but but if you like here the partridge for them is the kind of carrot you know they're always chasing a sufficient number of partridges to be able to shoot a few and when i was talking to them um, a year and a half ago two years ago they said they hadn't got there yet but this summer has been a very good summer for grey partridges so it, it may be the case that they're, that they're there now Was the dryness, the, the dry summer was good for it Was the very partridges. good yeah. yeah, what they always used to say is that if it rains in Ascot week um, which is not an event I've ever been to uh-huh. but they always used to say if it rains in Ascot week it's going to be a poor year for partridges And so that's the middle of June obviously so yes, just when just they've true. hatched um, and and the mothers, uh, the, the mothers won't kind of leave them alone, so um, so so yeah, they'll just stay on the nest. They're very good mothers, and, and the mothers do this thing where they pretend that they've got a broken wing, and will run around to try and draw the the, the predators off as well. And the and the fathers are very. Um, Pugnacious, you know, they've been recorded flying at all kinds of predators, many times their size. Yeah. Um, so that I think that's one of the reasons people like them so much. Actually, is because a lot of character. A lot of character, and I think we liked that. One of the funny things is that we call them English partridges, but actually, you know, you get the same partridges in Hungary, um, you know, in lots of parts of Eastern Europe. So I, I think part of it is that we like to kind of claim them as our own because we think that in some way, you know, that the values that they hold in a very anthropomorphic way are the sort of
1: values that we hold dear too. Oh, I see. Vagacious defence of, uh, of, of the of the own yes. territory. Re- yeah, yes. exactly, yes, right. exactly. Okay. As a sort of island. Uh, we won't have other, and the red-legged partridge also, it's called the French partridge, is that right? Exactly. Uh, so, so, it's, to it's, so
2: to differentiate them and that. Yeah, I mean the French partridge was introduced as a species to to hunt uh, and and there weren't that many there for quite a long time and then it started to be the case that the grey partridge numbers depleted and depleted, um, and and they they realised they could carry on shooting or they could shoot even more if they just put red legs down because with with the rays you have to have that kind of give and take thing you know you have to look after the landscape for them and then you can shoot all year round all right. year round and you can shoot a sort of sustainable surplus and you can't shoot more than that whereas with reds you can you can put them down so it's not
1: a sort of you know give a bit and take a bit thing to the same extent so just literally yeah. releasing birds to be shot well does yeah some, i mean some survive and breed of the red yeah looks, they do the yeah yeah there.
2: yeah i mean the, the interesting thing though is that that the wild grey is a much better parent because they've been taught how to be a parent, you know. Whereas if you've been bred in captivity, you haven't, um, you, you know, you, you haven't had to sort of fend off predators in the same way, or rather, you haven't had to escape from predators. I suppose. It's I a see. Bit. So you haven't been tested against the wild. No. So when they when they release greys, they often do a thing. They 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 foster. They they breed greys in captivity and then they foster them to wild parents, which I is so quite complicated. Sort of, yeah. yeah. It's important too to recognise that there are lots of places where um, red legs are released, where there is a benefit to biodiversity um, because you know they, they also need habitat to live in and they need cover and so on. But so, so
1: that encourages farmers to or landowners to produce this sort of. You for for, for greys, for, for, yeah, for, for red
2: legs, well, not maybe quite like this, but they do need cover. Yeah. So, so you know, you couldn't have just bare fields that you were farming the hell out of with red yeah. legs. Um, but it's a it's quite a complicated picture, certainly. And the other thing is, is that you know, with red legs, you tend to be shooting far more, and the greys don't really like disturbance. And and also, you know, gamekeepers evolved. Swallow
1: just went by. We okay, sleeping around us. we well, very late. <laughs> <swallow>. <laughs> it's we're time literally the last day of last day of. Um, September. The last one. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really
2: complicated, the the picture between the greys and the reds, but certainly where people are doing an awful lot to try and um, revive populations of greys, red legs are not, um,
1: not, not good news, no. Um, you're a shooter, I yeah. take it. Yeah. Yeah. How often do you shoot? Um,
2: this season less than normal, because it's been very difficult for people to get the birds into the country, but I would say because I of, shoot... Because of avian flu. Because of avian flu, which is a big problem for, for all sorts of... Um, Different reasons this year, and, and for birds in general. But I shoot maybe 10, 15 times a year, and I just enjoy really being out there and wildfowling as well. Is, is something I really. I mean, one of the things with shooting is it takes you to places at strange times. So most people aren't out there at dawn, um, you know, on the marsh. But but if you're wildfowling, you often are, and it's a really special time of the day. So you're shooting wild birds mostly, uh, or, or wild. Uh, well, a whole mixture, yeah. a whole, a whole, a whole mixture. But I, but shooting wild birds is brings me a lot more pleasure certainly um, than shooting reared birds I think that when you're shooting wild birds it gives you a great appreciation of their of their brilliance really so you know mm. when you are shooting something like um, snipe for instance you know to see those birds and, and you know snipe gets shot so infrequently because they're such fantastic flyers so you know the word sniper comes from snipe uh, and it just yeah I mean their their ability on the wing is is, is Greatly appreciated just after you've missed one, yeah, which jing, I think for some people is probably, jing, jang, yeah, yeah, jang, yeah, jang yeah, jang, yeah. Well. and for some people, that's probably you know uh, something that, that 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 doesn't sit well with them, um, but it's an interesting thing, certainly. Would you
1: eat the snipe? Oh, yeah, 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 snipe's sure. delicious, snipe's no, delicious. No, really, really delicious. Just, you, you wouldn't shoot, do you shoot anything that you don't No, use? no,
2: okay, no, good. I mean, obviously, COVID control goes on and things. I don't, I don't shoot COVID myself, but you know, gamekeepers will shoot COVID, yeah, um, but no, I mean. No, it's a, and that's another thing is um, I had a very interesting conversation with a guy called Mark Avery who I think, you know, the other day we yes. were having dinner and he knows a hell of a lot about birds but um, he was saying to me he doesn't really know about how they taste um, so, so we were talking about that and I was saying to him, you know, a bird like the teal is hugely prized for its flavour and like a widgeon less so, so that's, it, and it struck me as being strange as somebody um, you know, who's eaten quite a lot of these birds that
1: people who are very into them might not actually know which ones Mark, Mark Avery is a... Is a... Environmental campaigner. Yeah. Former RSPB man. Head of conservation at the RSPB. Yeah.
2: Yeah. um, But I think, I mean, that's a good example of something I wanted to do with the the book was to meet people whose views are different to my own. And very often you find that actually you've got really quite a lot of common
1: ground as well as differing on things. There is the issue of millions of pheasants being released I know we haven't talked mm. about pheasants we talked about red legs millions of pheasants being released every year yeah. and this is the time of year i know there's fewer this year because of avian flu but this is the time of year when the pheasant season starts isn't yeah. It? yeah yeah well october so, yeah so yeah okay, it's very close to the yeah. starting um what are your thoughts on just the, the sort of shooting parties where hundreds of freshly relatively freshly released birds are just shot does that seem
2: i think i think yeah very few people i know who shoot don't recognize that there are parts of the sport that have become too big, Um, you know, and that the whole thing has has been slightly, you know, it's moved very much away from what it once was. Um, Just a few people, a couple of dogs. Yeah, well, I mean, if you talk to old keepers and, and, and old keepers feature in my book saying that they think that shooting went wrong when it became business, which is quite interesting. Um, But then, you know, people who are running often shoots like this one will sell a few days, which essentially pays for their conservation work. Um, So I, I think it's important to look at different shoots and what different shoots are doing, and to be pretty honest and say, you know, is there a net biodiversity gain happening here, or you know is the reverse happening and and that's not that hard to work out really but just to say you know shooting good
1: or shooting bad um is is no, it's simplistic absolutely but i think is anyone monitoring that's the thing is there a, is it all self-monitored because well
2: you know, i mean i give you a doing some interesting yeah they're doing some interesting into, stuff into that into guy um, um, joe
1: and madden i think it is there's yeah.
2: a very interesting thing i was watching there's a programme called Jack's Game where Jack Charlton used to go around and do sort of country pursuits on Yorkshire television not going back that long really um, but a pretty different world and he says in his pheasant shooting episode there are 10 million pheasants shot in this country each year 5 million are reared and 5 million are wild Um, and you know there are now got 50 60 maybe released i mean it's million yeah, yeah 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 depending on who you are they'll, they'll give you a different figure yes and certainly half of those are not wild and that's a reflection of two things i mean one that many more birds are being released but also that we're farming in a very different way because you know it's harder and harder and harder for a hen pheasant to find a quiet corner to raise a brood um so we need to keep topping
1: up the numbers by yeah. tens of
2: millions. yeah but then but then, you know. It's 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 harder and harder for wild game to succeed because we're farming in a different way to feed everybody and to keep sort of food prices cheap. So you've got all sorts yeah. of different factors at play. And I think one thing I really wanted to do with the book was not to sort of was to try and be as honest as I possibly could, and was to, I wanted to you know confront things that that I you know I'm involved in as somebody who shoots, um, but I didn't want to kind of blame anybody and, and point the finger, which I think is where we sometimes go wrong
1: yeah yeah i mean there is there's uh, some strong arguments and uh, talked about it quite a lot today as well about biodiversity gain mm. and sort of overall gain which um i am interested very much in sort of things like uh reptile declines and insect yeah yeah, that yeah thing, that's really have interesting really yeah. intense pheasant releases
2: yeah Um, And I think we're just starting to understand that, actually, because, you know, I mean, as I say, the 1980s to now is not a very long period. Mm -hmm. So I I think there are all sorts of different scientific bodies who are looking at these things, like the Game Conservancy and then you've got the RSPB on the other side. And what we really need is for those guys to work together and Mm -hmm. to sort of, you know, because science sort of competes with other science. But I think if everybody can kind of come together and, and, and kind of share and look at case studies together, then we're in a much better place.
1: We should go and look for some partridges yeah so,
2: you see there is a kind of dumpy shape you're doing pretty well there's a dumpy shape just further up there creeping in can you see that
1: yeah there's two actually yeah. let's get the, get the bins on them oh yes i saw something moving <laughs> with my eyes not with the binoculars something scuttled in it looked like a hen pheasant but when i when i was writing
2: the book i kept on i had this kind of fear that i wasn't capturing landscapes as they really are and i almost to the point of like kind of madness and I came I was with Francis all day here and then I came back a couple of days later because I can't remember what it was but I, I just felt that I hadn't quite got it and with Francis all we'd found was a grey partridge feather and then when I came back um, there were two cockbirds who were scrapping in the stubble which was really it was a kind of feather and, and dust flying everywhere so yeah. it's a real uh, it's, it's a really amazing thing yeah. really, and they really fight like they yeah. really really do scrap it's quite an amazing thing to see so
1: it's been a good year for them. Yeah. Um, where do people where if we talked about them not being in Wales, where do you find them generally in the UK?
2: So I mean, the funny the funny thing is is that is that is that where they're doing very well is really on shooting estates, on, on, on shooting states that really want to bring back their grey partridges. Um, so, you know, where I went to see them later on in this chapter, there's a young, a young keeper there and they took the partridge numbers, they count them in pairs, so they, they took the, because they, they mate for life, but they took them, I think, from like 14 to over 100, which is quite amazing. But what they've got there is a farmer who's completely dedicated to grey partridges. So he says to his gamekeeper, you know, is it okay if I do this? And the gamekeeper turns around and says, no, absolutely not, because that won't be good for the partridges. Right. And the, the farmer will lose out financially on that. But, you know, he feels that what he's gaining through those partridges recovering is, is far greater than any financial loss, um, which is which is extraordinary. I mean, It's quite enlightened. Which is really enlightened. Yeah. It's a real privilege to be able to do that. Um, and then there's an old guy brilliantly called Gerald Gray, who's a fifth generation gamekeeper who I went to see in Norfolk. Um, they're doing very well there, but they're only shooting sort of two days a year. Maximum. And they're shooting grey partridges. Shooting grey partridges. But, you know, he was saying to me as well that, you know, most of his career was just turning around and saying to the man who employs him, I'm sorry you can't shoot this year because we don't have sufficient numbers. Yeah, and yeah, that was, yeah, yeah. you know, and, they, and the, the, the boss would say, not a problem, we will try again next year. But, of course, the ability to do that requires very deep pockets, yeah. um, which, which, do, which doesn't, you know, so it wouldn't work to run a grey partridge shoot commercially
1: um is there a way of farming that is both profitable and would in, would help the grey partridge and obviously all these other farmland birds that we you know the linnets, the skylarks the corn buntings all so those sort of
2: one of the things that i think it, it, it can be really interesting about narrative non-fiction is it provides a kind of snapshot of time yeah. so when um, I was writing my book, there were lots of people who were very excited about ELMS, and, and they said, you know, ELMS is going to change everything, and, you know... So ELMS is... So ELMS is... Let me just get the acronym right. It's Environmental Land Management Scheme. That's it.
1: That's is it. that it? That is, that is exactly it. Yeah. And it's replaced the high-level stewardship and entry-level stewardship of the previous... Um,
2: so, yeah, it was, and it was all
1: part of, of kind of biodiversity recovery, um, and... Basically, paying, si- paying farmers taxpayers money... To look after the land for nature.
2: Yes, but we all benefit from nature. Is, the, is this is the point? So um, they call it common goods. Or, yes, or exactly, yeah,
1: exactly, exactly, exactly. There was a um, there was a kestrel that just flew by it. Wow. Hunting was a bit of ground there. I've got my back to a lot of the action to block the wind, but uh,
2: and you see the birds well, sort of bursting up. So when I was writing the book, a lot of people were very excited about elms and. At so the post, moment, post Brexit, post bre- so post Brexit, they were very excited about it. And, you know, there was a hedge layer in the book who said to me, we are on the brink of an agricultural revolution in this country. Mm. Um, and now it's just not clear what's actually going to happen. They say that there are sort of things coming down the line. But it's just interesting that there was so much hope at that point, And the world of conservation now is sort of in despair about, you know, what could have been. Yes, yeah, so, um, um,
1: at time of recording, we were in a bit of a turmoil post um various announcements and rumours coming out about what's going to happen with these schemes, so uh, there is a lot of anger out there, I know the RSPB has sort of unprecedented language yeah. in its tweets and in its messaging and, and lots, it's almost like a uni- united conservation voice at the moment yeah. which is... So So people yeah. people were going to be given more money to do things like
2: this and of course you know, at the moment you, you do get grants for doing things like this, but was going to happen to a greater degree and people weren't going to be able to rely on essentially uh money for not really doing anything at all yeah. so like the basic payment and then the single farm payment um, in scotland so so yes you get subsidized to do things like this but but actually for for lots of people it's just better to kind of carry on and just farm conventionally
1: have you got your partridge eyes in today
2: <laughs> they're pretty hard they're pretty hard to see yeah, I mean, when okay. they fly when they and when, when they fly you can see the underside of the wing um, but they really blend into the landscape which the, is the cock partridge when it's displaying kind of throws off any sense of danger right. uh, and then they're very vulnerable which is a which yeah, is yeah, a sort yeah, of the urge to breed yeah the yes, urge to breed just yeah. you know overtakes in all species, maybe that's another thing that we see in the grey partridge and we value this kind of we see it in ourselves it's <laughs> <that>, uh, <we laughs> sort of reckless when we, yeah yeah um, <laughs> Reckless horniness, that's what we, uh...
1: <laughs> Yeah. It's one of those leaden days of autumn, it's not going to rain, it said it was going to pour down by It night. feels like it, there's a, there's a, there's a it, yeah, it, it's very heavily autumnal. And the trees are turning, but not a lot of partridge action out here. So we've just walked along the windiest road here, the windiest lane in Sussex. With a couple of interesting things to talk about. But um, firstly we're looking back across where are these go. We're looking back across a field of golden stubble with wood pigeons in the tens if not hundreds out there. Yeah they A wheat,
2: wheat stubble, and they're just getting blown around in a very yeah. autumnal way. But it's amazing that there's still food for them there, and it just gives you a really good example of you know, why stubble in the winter is, is valuable, because you know you've got pickings there for things like the grey partridge, and you know as we can see for things like the pigeon. Whereas if they cultivate that straight away, um, you know then there's then there's just a, a barren landscape for them. There's nothing really for them there.
1: Is this something that's happening a bit more often um, that stubble is being left a little bit more because? I've been very aware of autumn planting where yeah, yeah. shovel gets ploughed straight in and so a new crop, so winter, winter cropping rather than yeah. spring cropping. Yeah, I think people are starting to realise the benefits
2: of it more, um, and obviously it's 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 part of the stewardship scheme as well. Um, so that's quite interesting. And, and you know, here obviously they're trying to do things for their grey partridges, and we've seen it all over the place. So yeah. it's sort of,
1: yeah. you know, it's that's a lot of food, a lot of wild, food a lot else. of food. Yeah,
2: okay. yeah, and then you've got weeds that come through as well. So weed seeds that are a big, big part of it
1: for them. It's quite nice to see it. Oh, and they've got an apple tree
2: here. Well, exactly. Burn, I just free. saw that, I just saw that. I thought I might yeah. have to go across and get myself an apple. Yeah, that's all <laughs> <laughs> But
1: it's a very bountiful
2: time, and it's interesting that um, you know this, this sort of wild harvest, it's funny because it feels like it's a time of year when everything is kind of dying away, but you've still just got blackberries there uh,
1: and you've got apples there. So well, a lot of people of... will be saying, oh, I'm not seeing so many birds on my bird feeders at the moment, but they're going out to the countryside and getting, exactly, getting yeah. decent food. Yeah. And, um, yeah. yeah, they're gorging themselves on natural food, which they know you know, when, they, when they need to, they'll be back in the gardens for the um, peanuts. For the peanuts, exactly, yeah. This is wonderful. Uh, we've also passed, um, which you picked up, the, the, the backbone, the spine of a rabbit, yeah. which um, was lying in the middle of the road. Uh, probably a road, I'm, I'm assuming a roadkill, it had been picked clean, just a little bit of fur on it. But we were, we were talking about that, and it would be nice to just sort of capture that. Um, yeah, I mean, about the, rabbits. Because... I mean, the start of my book starts off with memories that
2: I've got of, of stalking rabbits. I used to make very... Um, very sort of bleak rabbit pie when i was young and rabbit casserole it was always far too chewy one of the probably the, the first things yeah. that i cooked but i used to spend a lot of time stalking bleak rabbits rabbit pie. yeah it sounds like a, yeah
1: you must like, bring, bring that into kind of podcast thomas hardy
2: yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah plot line but um no so you know, there were rabbits everywhere and then I was, I was just saying that, you know, I occasionally come across people who are of the same age that I was then who will tell me that they'll spend their time trying to, uh, to, to, to shoot rabbits in, in Dumfries and Galloway and in other places and they just can't find them anymore. So the number of rabbits has just really dropped away and it's, you know, as you were saying, when, when the common things go, you know, you know that we've got a bit of a, a bit That's of a problem. It's really
1: shocking. No rabbits are it's, it's, disease issues and
2: habitat issues. But yeah, so I mean, myxomatosis was obviously the big one, and then um, sort of hemorrhagic disease as well. But, you know, I talk a lot to ferriters, and they're always interesting because, you know, they spend their whole life thinking about rabbits, and, <laughs> and they, will, they will say that, you know, when they're not thinking about ferrets, I guess, but they will say that, um, <laughs> That that they come back a little bit and then they go, which is really have one last little yeah yeah. Uh, And you used to have rabbit
1: catchers who were you know catching rabbits professionally, which is an interesting thing. We've seen a rare species. We can still see it on the road. probably a rotegill, it's a croissant. The croissant that's fallen what? down from the croissant tree. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, you do wonder uh, how or that's ended up there. Well,
1: it's on migration back to France. I don't, we just have to speculate on how it's got there. Those There's very, uh, the uh, very bougie uh, Sussex farmers throwing their croissants <laughs> <laughs> out yes, okay. the window. Brilliant. Um, so it's good and bad news. The bad news first, we've arrived at this absolutely beautiful pub, the Harrow Inn, after a few uh, well, I'd say a, a lot of cross-country driving and some false starts and false storms. It's shut.
2: Last, okay. last time I was here, I didn't have any uh, cash with me, and it's yeah. cash only. And have uh, well, this cash. time, this yeah. time I've got cash, but it's closed. It's
1: closed. Okay. Um, so the third time lucky. But they do have this wonderful uh, display of fruit: apples and pears. They've got some. Flowers. They've got some
2: sweet peas. They've it's got apples fantastic. of every variety. So I think. Given me, just, how's your how was your, your apple? that we had from the tree. Oh,
1: I haven't tried it yet. Oh, you haven't no, tried it yet. So I okay, okay. You.
2: It was good? Mine was very good, okay, yeah. Well, but well, I think well. I'll go for some pears instead, given we've done apples. will get four for a pound. So it's four for a pound, so we can okay. have two each.
1: Brilliant. We'll we'll, go. Uh, we'll, 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 have a healthy pub lunch. Fashica, are you optimistic about the future of partridges? Of the grape partridge. And, and farmland, wildlife in general. I think when I finished the book, I've been asked this
2: question a few times, actually, you know, did the book make you optimistic or otherwise? And, um, in many ways, the book made me deeply sad, but I also, so <laughs> I also finished writing it with a huge sort of renewed faith in people to some degree. So I think collectively we have done some pretty awful things, but there are individuals out there who are doing absolutely everything they can. Um, and I met a New Age... Um, well I suppose he had been a new age traveller, he's now sort of has put down roots in Findhorn and he said to me, you understand don't you, that if we're going to save wildlife it's going to take a lot of love and I think what he was saying was sort of quite abstract but actually there's really a lot of truth in that and there's a lot of love for the grey partridge and, and that gives me hope, you know there are people who are doing everything they possibly can to save the grey partridge and are farming in grey partridge friendly ways so, you know, if we can, to just extend his comment a bit, if we can have a bit more love among one another and appreciate, you know, each other's perspectives, um, so if we can appreciate what, you know, some shoots are doing for the Grey Partridge, um, and, you know, if some other shoots can appreciate why, you know, shoots that are doing things for the Grey Partridge are doing things differently to the way that they're doing things, um, then I think there is... Uh, there is.
1: That's almost my next question. What... <laughs> what? would you like to see what single thing do you think would improve the chances of our poli- policy I think probably more than anything what I think
2: thing? it's listening you know I know that but but you know the the young keeper I was talking to in Gloucestershire who was saying to me listen he said if we ban snaring in this country there is no hope for the Grey Partridge that was something that he felt really deeply now that might not be the case but you know given he spends his whole life just trying to save essentially grey partridges on his patch. I think going and listening to a person like him, who maybe would say things that some people would find unpalatable, or I've got pear in my mouth, um, is very important.
1: That's really, that's hard for lots of people to hear, I suspect, because snares are being banned in Wales.
2: Yeah, 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 Yeah. I just read that this morning. I mean, you know, he took me around, he showed me how he sets his snares. You know, I have to say, I've seen photos of uh, of 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 creatures that have been caught in snares that make you think nobody should ever use a snare ever again but that was you know what he felt now he also said some things to me that the the ornithologist who i spoke to here uh told me were completely wrong and that's really really interesting but yeah. you know this ornithologist is prepared to listen to people like him and i think he is prepared to listen to people like the ornithologist who i was spending time with you know and it's it's if if we learn to to listen to each other and to you know and and certainly there are things that we think that probably aren't the case um and you know there's sort of old rural law uh which is disputed but but in the middle of all of that i think there is a there is a, a journey through and my greatest worry is that we spend so long arguing with each other and and we become so entrenched that you know we'll still be arguing when species like the great partridge are, are yeah, gone and essentially we make it about ourselves rather than it being about wildlife yeah
1: Mind if I record?
2: Or we're doing a podcast yeah, about doesn't... grey
1: partridges. Grey partridges? But this makes a really nice yeah. finale. Okay. <laughs> okay. So we have been blessed because the you owner, know, what's your name? Claire, Claire and niece
0: <laughs> and my sister, we're oh, both owners together. Oh wasn't. my goodness,
1: you've yeah. opened, we've well, allowed us in just for a, a yeah. cheeky heart, just all before right. closing. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, and this is, how old do you say
0: this pub is? Uh, between five and 600 years old. But no. parts of it are Victorian, like this bit here behind no. the bar, and the other bar is
2: Victorian.
1: It's one of those yeah. perfect... And
0: has it been beautiful. a pub for that long? Yeah. Oh. Wow. Uh, so, uh, you know, like um, a drover's inn.
2: Yeah, yeah. Because they yeah. used
0: to, if you actually look at it, we're actually on a triangle, mm. and they used to pen the cattle up and sheep up here, and before they took them into Petersfield. Oh, really? Because um, there was a market? There. Yeah. There, How do no, no, I go with, that, Would have ceased to be a market? Well, Peter. that was Saxon times. Oh, I don't know. Market. Yeah. Ooh, 60s. Really. Where is, is there a market in Hampshire still? Yes, there is. Oh, there was one at Winchester, but I think even that's gone now. Yeah, yeah, I think the nearest is Salisbury, where everyone takes it's all crazy, their shoes. crazy, isn't it,
2: that markets Ooh. are just getting
1: fewer and fewer it's and fewer. It's really sad, actually. Yeah.
0: Incredibly sad. Yeah. Really sad, it is, it's yeah.
1: dark, beamed, beautiful place. There's a lovely smell of woodsmoke. It feels like it's yeah. very welcoming as the storm <laughs> cl- as the storm comes. Well,
0: in. the storm is meant to be happening at three o'clock, and I think it's sort of happened, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> well, it's happening. beginning to. Happen, it's yeah. beginning to do things. But well, yeah, thank you for letting into good. this I well That's, that's right. I'm just going to get
2: you another little bit of your hot. <laughs> we don't have any partridges around here, actually. So. No. Well, well uh, we don't see grey partridges. Basically, I, I wrote a fact. The, the, the pub the pub feature so this is this is the podcast is for the BBC magazine, but the, right. the pub features in the in the book because at the end of talking to a guy about grey pastures on the Rotherfield estate, we came to the pub. Oh
0: did you? Oh, right. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Okay. So we yeah. We're gonna okay. oh, to to But, we're going to <laughs> but, <laughs> but <laughs> lots of people it's funny. Oh, which chapter It's the Oh I call yeah, I talk about that. Really? Okay. So, I I oh, it's just it's only a little can passing I, I'll just thing. Have a quick but all it just says is that the Harrow doesn't take cards, and Francis and like, I can only cobble together five pounds between us. Oh and no! Half <laughs> it's <the other> <laughs> oh no, <laughs> sweet. Quite funny. though <laughs> Oh,
0: that's lovely. On, on that
1: note, how
0: much do I? Uh, no, I'll give you that. That's fine.
1: That's, that's really kind.
0: That, that is cheers. so kind. Okay. Thank you that's so sorry. much.
1: Bless you. But
0: yes, we don't take
1: cards. Well, <laughs> Cheers to Claire. Okay, thank you. Thank you. you. Bye now, bye. This is a podcast with two endings. And this is the happy ending. Patrick, cheers. Wonderful. Thank you very much. This is great. Cheers. (laughs) So huge thank you to Patrick for a whirlwind tour of partridge country. We may not have found the birds this time, but it's certainly given me a mission for 2023. Hopefully we'll bring the grey partridge into the podcast at some stage and Patrick joins the podcast our Christmas special next week when the team and I are also welcoming podcast regulars Annabelle Ross and Kevin Parr lastly a huge thank you to Claire McCutcheon of the Harrow Inn without whom we would have missed a true countryside treat and one small tip if you ever visit don't forget your cash and that's it for this week join me and the team as I say for our Christmas special for now thanks for listening happy Christmas and goodbye